0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm very happy to be here. It's wonderful to see you all. What I want to talk about this morning, the title of my talk, is uh, How Do I Practice With This? How do I practice with this? Very often people will ask me, well, I have this problem and how do I practice with it? Very often I ask myself, how do I practice with this? <laughs> uh, so that's what I'd like to talk about. And it, it has come slightly, partly out of uh, a, a talk I heard by Joseph Goldstein a few weeks ago. And he reported that somebody had asked him, so give me a clue here. What, what is actually the connection between mindfulness and freedom? I go around being mindful, and, and so what? <laughs> what happens then? How do I get from here to there? And that, that really is what I'd like to talk about this morning. So, um, in addition to that talk, another source of inspiration was a talk on concentration that I was listening to the other day. It was a talk by Gil Fransdell that he gave probably, I don't know, two and a half years ago, something like that. And I periodically go through some talks that have particular meaning for me to just see what comes up this time. And what came up was the definition of concentration as steadiness. You know, we tend to think of focusing. And we do that when we think of mindfulness, too. We, we think, well, I'm going to be mindful of this and I'm going to focus on my breath. Right? And there's an important part of mindfulness that looks for focus. But real concentration relies upon steadiness, on being present in a continuous way. And that, that ability to be mindful in a continuing way, that's the secret. That's the route to freedom. It is not saying, well, I'm going to be mindful then, but now I need to get on with my life. It's actually being mindful and seeing the wisdom and the and the joy of mindfulness that allows us to reach the the place of freedom. So so how do we do that? (laughs) You know, it's all well and good to say, well, I'm going to be mindful all the time. And, you know, we live busy lives. We live busy lives. There's lots happening in our lives. What we know is that whatever we set out to do, there's something that happens. You know, experience happens. Despite what we plan, in addition to what we plan, experience happens. It's neither good nor bad, it's just experience. It happens. So whatever intentions we have, we have to be there for what actually happens instead of what we plan. Instead of how we want to control our lives we have to deal with what arises. And what we notice is, in fact, that it seldom goes by our plan. The experience that comes up isn't the experience that we have prepared for. (laughs) This is what happens instead of what we've prepared for. Sometimes it's similar, but not really very often. This is what arises. And what we notice about that is the change. It seemed to us perfectly logical that this follows from this and then it doesn't. We become very aware of the impermanence of life, the impermanence of our intentions, the impermanence of our practice, the impermanence of how things are supposed to be that they aren't. Well, this is what was supposed to happen. This is how things should be. This is how I should be. It isn't that we don't affect our experience because we set the conditions for our experience by how we practice, what our intentions are. You know, if I'm walking around so sure that someone is out to get me, I'm looking for that all the time and my life is contracted and cold. And if I'm sure that everybody in the world is wonderful, the first time somebody cuts me off on the freeway, I'm devastated. We do condition our our experience by what we focus on, by what we pay attention to, by how we are in the world. We set up the next moment by how we are in this moment. So it's not that we don't affect our experience; it's just that we don't get to control it. <laughs> we don't get to say what it's going to be by our actions, or our choices. We c- we can set the conditions for what happens over and over and over and over, and we see that what we dwell on is what arises. What we dwell on is what arises. Okay. So I notice that. Uh, I'm paying a little attention and I notice that's what's happening. Okay. And then there is experience and I notice that experience and I'm paying attention and we say okay, there is this thing that happened and I, I feel it. You know, it comes in through my sense doors and um, you know, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant and I, I recognize it. I say, oh, this is anger, or this is joy, or you know I recognize it, and then I have thoughts about it. This is good, this is bad, I want this, I don't want this. And we're aware of these experiences. Okay, so now we have experience, and we have paying attention to the experience. And at one moment or another, we may be more focused on pleasant or unpleasant. We may be focused on recognizing what it is. I know what this is. All of these opinions, all of these thoughts, all of these ideas we have about of our experience have certain qualities in mindfulness. We may notice something in our experience and say, oh yes, I know what this is. I want this. And I'm aware of the fact that I want this. I really, I really want this. And we can feel that the energy of that desire and you're leaning in toward it and that becomes very obvious to you. Oh, I'm clearly wanting this. I'm wanting this. In the act of wanting this, we're conditioning the next moment for us to fall into that next moment and grasping onto that. There's a certain clinging that happens as a consequence of that Overweening, I want, I want, I want, I want. Whatever it is. Maybe it's just another piece of tofu. Maybe it's a new car. (laughs) I want, okay? So we can get lost in that desire, and we immediately have opinions about that desire. I shouldn't have this desire. This desire, I I have to justify this desire. Well, of course I want this because I'm really hungry. I've been hungry for hours. And we get tied up in this, this story about explaining to ourselves a thought that has arisen. And we're spending a lot of time on that. And then we notice, oh, I'm chattering here. There's there's some mental chatter around this. There's agitation. There's agitation in the mind. When we see this agitation, when we notice this agitation, we know that there is clinging, there is desire, there is aversion. It's very important, a, a very important realization of mindfulness to notice agitation. Because it's a clue to what's really happening. Along with this experience is our perception of the experience. This is what we think it is. I know what's happening here. This is just me wanting this thing again. And I have a choice. I can continue wanting it or I can not want it anymore. Good luck. <laughs> That's hard. That's really hard to say, okay, I have this strong feeling and I'm just going to let go of it because that's what a virtuous person would do. Well, if you can do that, that's that's really quite wonderful. And with little things, we can do that. But when it's really overwhelming, A, what makes it overwhelming? B, what do we do about it? How do I practice with this? How do I practice with this? The first thing we do is we say, okay. so what else is here? If I'm wanting this so bad, what is it that I'm wanting, really? Most of the time, it isn't what we see that we want. It's something else. There's something else happening. So when I was was very young, Years and years and years ago, someone accused me of being addicted to love. What a terrible thing to say. And what they were implying by this is that actually I was addicted to falling in love. Addicted to falling in love. This wasn't entirely untrue. You know, when you're falling in love with someone, there's the newness of it. And there's a lot of excitement with you, you feel some connection with someone. And there's the excitement of finding out about them. And we have so much in common. We don't notice all the things we don't have in common. And we, we're, we, there's a sexual excitement. And this is a lot of wonderful energy. Ooh, this feels good. And we, we connect with that feeling good, that energy of feeling good. And we don't notice that it is energy. We don't notice that it is excitement. We call it love. We perceive it as something that meets our needs. (laughs) And we're not really seeing what else is there, which is, oh, I like that energy. That energy makes me feel so alive. And we proceed to say the other person is responsible for that. Just as when we're angry, the other person is responsible for that. But we are 100% responsible for our own responses. 100% responsible. Okay, so I see this excitement. Now what? I'm in the flame of desire. I see that energy. What's happening? So I'm going, to eat, I'm going to bring it a little closer to home. And this morning, many of you may have felt the earthquake. Is there anybody who did not feel the earthquake? <laughs> Some people didn't feel the earthquake. This is good. So at three 3.20 this morning, <laughs> boom, okay, it was a, a, a six on the Richter scale earthquake uh, outside of Napa. So I live in West Marin. I'm not actually on the same plate where I am, I'm on the on the western side of Tamales Bay, which is where the San Andreas Fault runs through. So, you know, theoretically, it shouldn't be as great a shaker over there, but I can assure you, my husband and I both got out of bed, went running for the, the overhangs, you know. It, it, the, whole, the house was shaking. There was a lot of rattling. There was a lot of noise. It went on for a while. You know, it had the usual thing of starting out slowly, and you're saying, well, did this really happen? And then, yeah, it's happening, right? Okay. So I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do now? Is this a small quake on the San Andreas Fault, from which I'm about a mile, <laughs> and therefore there could be an aftershock of considerable size? You know, fear is arising. Or is this a major earthquake from further away, which was the case? Napa's, I'm not sure, maybe 35. Forty miles from where I live and um, so I went and looked on the, the computer looked at U.S. Geological Society saw that it was a six point earthquake you know I'm, I'm into this it's 3.20 in the morning <laughs> 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 and they, they so I said well I'm going to fill out the form that says did you feel this earthquake <laughs> so, so I felt, filled out the form did you feel this earthquake and they ask all these interesting questions And one of the questions, in addition to your exact location, because they want to know, you know, what did it, how did it propagate? They asked questions designed to let them know what the intensity of the quake is. So one of the questions had to do with, how did you feel? It's very interesting. So it was excitement. uh, I don't even remember all of the categories. I just remember the ones I was choosing between. (laughs) Okay, so one was excitement, one was slightly frightened, one was very frightened. And so I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, I was slightly frightened, you know, it was, I was slightly frightened. I don't know how important that was to their categorization, but it got me thinking about my response, and, and what was going on with me, not whether I wanted something or didn't want something... But what was my perception of the event and what was really going on with me? It turned out to be a really, really great exercise. So what I discovered was, I, I've eventually because I the fear factor had gone away once I knew where the earthquake occurred and even if there was an aftershock it probably would not be dangerous for me, then the fear factor went away. But there was still excitement. Ah, there's something else here. In addition to the fear, there's excitement. So it took me a while, but I finally dozed off, I got up and got ready to come here. It's about usually about a two-hour drive to here. So I'm, I'm getting ready to go, and I realize I'm still pretty excited. And all the way down, I was pretty excited. Now, I wasn't excited about the earthquake, but the mood of excitement gave rise to a variety of thoughts. And it was extremely interesting to find that. It turns out, I actually really like energy. I really like excitement. I'm quite addicted to excitement. This has a lot of implications. To notice that I am addicted to excitement leads to all kinds of insights about what causes me suffering. What causes me suffering? So I noticed that there was a tendency... Well, first of all, excitement was fun. It was fun. I like excitement. In addition to its being fun, there was the energy that made me feel very alive. Right? And I noticed, my mind, I noticed thoughts like, oh, this is the real me. <laughs> this is the re- because I like it. Yeah, This is the real me. Right. This is the real me. Okay, so now I'm older than I used to be. And excitement doesn't come as often as it used to come. <laughs> All kinds of excitement. You know, and I've, I've deliberately moved myself out to the country. I don't have a lot of the stimulus of the, of the city. Uh, and I love that quiet. But because I have the mind habit of being addicted to excitement. When excitement is not there, it's easy for me to perceive something that is also not there. I may notice the lack of excitement, but because I don't notice it as that, I might call it sadness. I might call it grief. Because what I notice is a sinking energy and I perceive it as something, I name it as something. And if I don't say, really? What else is here? I might decide that I'm really sad. The lack of excitement becomes something I interpret as something else. Mindfulness, the clarity of mindfulness, to keep saying, really? what else allows me to see, oh, this is just a low-energy day. That doesn't mean that I am in despair. Maybe what I'm calling grief is something else entirely. Maybe I'm noticing a lot of losses lately. Maybe I'm noticing friends, people my age who are dying, And maybe what's coming up for me is mortality. Or maybe what's coming up for me is fear of being sick. But if I don't pay attention, if I don't really pay attention, I will miss all this. And I will name it something that is convenient, that is in keeping with my normal mind habit, and I will suffer. I will suffer. So what we do is we ask ourselves what's the attitude of my mind now what's the attitude pay attention to the attitude so there's there's the experience there's the response to the experience and how do we interpret that response? When we find ourselves caught in a circle. I'm stuck here, I'm stuck here. Ask why am I stuck? Not what about this experience has stuck me? Uh-uh, uh-uh. What what am I hooked on? What is it? What is it? Maybe what I'm calling fear, usually what I call fear is something else. It's something else. But it takes me a while to find it. Maybe weeks. This is where the steadiness of mindfulness becomes so important. We don't have to know the answer. Sometimes knowing the answer just gets in the way of just experiencing it. This is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. Oh, this is what's happening now. Ah, this is just a response. This is a reaction. So uh, I recently took care of uh, my grandchildren. (laughs) They're one and three, and they're boys. They're actually one and a half and three and a half. This is a little important, not a lot of important, but kind of important. They're really a handful. They're really a handful. And the the three-year-old went through the terrible twos, and I'm thinking, oh, good, he's through those now. And now he's just a three-year-old. Okay, so I never had children of my own. This was my stepdaughter's children. So this is new for me. <laughs> and I'm watching this thir- three-year-old. And he's really better about certain things. You know, you can actually talk to him and reason with him. And you kind of forget he's only three. So he, he, uh, he's pretty clear when something happens that's not what he wants. And what follows is, not necessarily in this order, screaming, hitting, throwing. <laughs> um, lots of unsocial behavior. And, and what I notice in me, and I'm very proud when I'm totally quantumus, and he's only three, and this is what's happening, and sometimes I can reason with him, sometimes I can distract him. This, is, this doesn't have any meaning. And then there comes the time it's Five in the afternoon, and I'm really tired. You know, I'm an old lady chasing these little kids. I'm tired. Mm, I don't have quite as much steadiness as I did. And there's my husband trying to solve this in another way. (laughs) I want things. And so then I noticed, okay, I'm cranky. I'm not going to take it out on him. I notice I'm really edgy. I feel this agitation in the mind. There's all this agitation in the mind. And I'm paying attention. This is what's okay. Uh, I really want this. I want want what I want. Oh my goodness, this is just like Duncan. I want what I want. (laughs) How interesting to realize this, to see this. Now I'm still agitated. I'm still irritated. But now I've done a little step back and I can see. This is me wanting what I want. I can laugh at it. I can become disenchanted with it. I can stop repeating the circle. This is what should be happening. This is what, this is, I should be better at this. this Whatever the story is I'm telling, I can become disenchanted with this story. This is just wanting here. Disenchantment then leads to dispassion. I can let go of some of that agitation. And then there is a certain amount of peace. Hello, freedom. Hello, freedom. The sequence is disenchantment. You step back from the world that you're caught in. You just step back from it. You're not trying to let go of anything. You're not going to pretend you're no longer irritated. None of that. You don't pretend. I don't. I want. I don't want anymore. It isn't about pretending. It is about stepping back and becoming unenthralled. I'm no longer in the thrall of this feeling because I can see it. I recognize it. I can see it. And I become dispassionate. The energy goes out of it. The feeling of the energy going out of it is quite wonderful because it's followed immediately by a feeling of peace and ease. There was no conscious letting go of anything, folks. It was I didn't have to train myself to let go. I had to train myself to see it so that I could become dispassionate, disenchanted, dispassionate, at peace. So I'll give you an example of this. Um, So I've I've been with my husband a long time. 30 years or so. And we're pretty used to each other. He's quite a wonderful person. And we have a very rich relationship. And... We live alone together. We don't have a lot of outside stimulus. It's pretty easy for us to bump up against different ways of thinking, different ways of solving problems, different ways of being. And, and depending on the mood that you have, you know, I have a dark mood, I have a bright mood, those differences can be highlighted, and you notice something, and there's irritation. Okay, so there's the irritation, this is bound to happen, and and there's conflict. Why are you doing it that way? What about this? We can't do this together. <laughs> Whatever arises, there's there's conflict, there's irritation, and you can feel it. I can feel the irritation coming up. And then I remember because I notice. Okay, Maria, you're really irritated here. And I'm not trying to justify the irritation. I'm not trying to explain it. I'm not trying to get rid of it either. I'm just noticing I'm really agitated here. And I recall a habit that I cultivate, which is to be kind to my husband. And I recall this intention to be kind to him. And in the moment of recalling the intention to be kind i become disenchanted with the argument i become dispassionate ill will and kindness really don't exist in the same moment thoughts about them may appear to be very close together but they don't actually exist in the same moment there's a there's a because i have an intention of kindness my heart softened The irritation was still there. It just didn't bother me the same way. It was, oh, okay. how important is this? (laughs) Truly not important. Not in light of my intention to be kind to this man I love. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have involved discussions about, you know, I don't know whether we're going to continue living there or, you know, what do we do about this problem? Or, you know, so it isn't about ignoring the differences between people or, or somehow becoming a saint. It only has to do with seeing in a way where you truly see what's going on, where you ask yourself, what's happening here? Sometimes when I'm in a discussion with him, I realize I have a really strong desire to be right? I know I'm right. He's wrong. He's just wrong. This is not going to solve the problem overall. And when there is all that agitation in the mind, all of that agitation in the moment, it's not going to have a solution either because that agitation is preventing the ease of dialogue, the freedom to be in the world without greed, hatred, or delusion. It's very easy to be deluded when you're agitated. Really easy to not know what's going on. And the only way to, to work with it, to practice with it, is to keep asking, what's going on here? What's happening? Why am I hooked? What am I hooked on, really? Really? Is it my desire to be right? Is it because nobody listens to me anymore? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a desire to be seen. I want to be seen. I'm having this argument over toast because I want to be seen. Let's be clear about what's going on. That mindfulness and that habit of mindfulness, the habit of watching what's really going on is so important to reaching the place where we can become disenchanted, dispassionate, free. And then notice it. Notice the ease that comes in that moment so that you can find it again, so that you'll, you can fall into it again. Sometimes it's a matter of what do you see That leads to your next experience, pretty much always. (laughs) What do you see? So, in the Buddhist words from the Satipatthana Sutta, these are words that I've skipped over many, many, many times. You just read it. Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be a deluded mind and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be a contracted mind and a distracted mind to be a distracted mind. He didn't say any of these things were good, bad, or indifferent. He said, know them. Know them. This is mindfulness. When I jumped out of bed this morning during the earthquake, my husband was the first person to run to a doorway. And I I was confused. And when the shaking had stopped, I said, you know, I'm confused. And it was interesting to me to realize I was just confused. I didn't know what to do. It was just confusion. I don't, I don't often notice confusion. I usually call it something else. So, recently, I bought something that was pretty expensive. And in the process of deciding whether to buy that something, I... Um, I went through a lot of stages of asking myself, uh, is this a good thing for me? Is this a good thing for other people? You know, all the usual good Buddhist things. I knew that desire was present. Desire was definitely present. I wanted it. (laughs) Now, there was a time when I got past wanting it, and I decided, no, And, and lust went away for me. Lust for that thing went away truly did. But boy, phew, there it was again. When it became, when, it, when there was a need that arose that, it, that was addressed by this thing, then, poof, lust was right back. Because it was there, I didn't trust anything I was doing. I didn't trust how I was trying to decide whether it was a reasonable thing to do or not. It's like saying, you know, I don't know if I can marry you because I'm in love with you. And, you know, if I'm in love with you, I probably don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Really, it was very, very similar. And I had to realize that I had become immobilized by my desire to not be consumed by desire. Whoa. (laughs) Confused. I was confused. And I recognized confusion. And I said, okay, in the midst of confusion, there is delusion here. So how did I get to the decision? Painfully. (laughs) But I broke it down into the parts. I said, okay, here's how I'm feeling about this. And I realized part of what I was feeling was, oh dear, what will other people think of me if I spend this money? Part of it was... Well, is this just my ego wanting this? Or is this just, you know, name it. There were all kinds of things. I don't need to share all my secrets with you. But, you know, there, there were a lot of things happening that I had to notice, just notice. And they would pop up. And there was excitement. I love excitement. So I had to notice excitement. I had to notice that when I'm excited, certain thoughts come up. You know, well, when I'm excited, I'm in love. Oh, that again. I had to see that. This is not about becoming a better person. This is about noticing so that one can become disenchanted, so that this leads to dispassion and peace. Somewhere here I have a quote, "Ajancha, ajancha, an agitated mind. Within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid, Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all the difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just this. we can skip all this stuff. So, when we become familiar with the experience of freedom, become familiar with the experience of freedom, of being disenchanted, we taste the ease of mind that is a peaceful mind. We taste it. We can see the wisdom in that. It's a matter of training the mind-heart. Train the mind to be in an open, peaceful state. Nowhere does it say, be better than you are. Nowhere does it say you have to become something else or someone else. Train the mind to be an open, peaceful mind to know the freedom of disenchantment. When you see you are caught up, when agitated, shift the attention to the reaction of the mind. Notice what the reaction of the mind is doing. Know the attitude. Disengage with the story. Disenchantment. Dispassion. Letting go. So I'm going to close with a reminder. This is a poem by Wendell Berry called The Peace of Wild Things. Some of you may be familiar with this. It's a lovely poem. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. When despair for the world grows in me, And I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things. Who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. May you all be free. Thank you. So I'm sorry I I spoke a long time. (laughs) If there are any short comments, we can do them, but it is a quarter to 11, so if you need to leave, please free free, for Feel free to do so. Comments, questions? Attitude shifts? Stones? Yes? I just wanted to share an earthquake bit. Mm -hmm. I woke, of course, to whoever was shaking my bed. And um, after a bit, I realized that I have been somewhat obsessing about physical changes as I enter my eighth decade and, and what is next and where will it all end. And I thought, this is really interesting. An earthquake. It could just do the job right here and now. <laughs> yes. And how did that feel? Good. Yes. Good. I laughed. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Arthur. He's over here. Um,
1: <clears throat> so I, I, I've been thinking something along the lines of what you spoke about today. And and um, it occurred to me that Well, a lot of times, I have no idea what I'm feeling, although I think I do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes time passes, and I recognize it, and then some more time passes, and I recognize it was something different. Um, There are things that happen when you're very young before you have language. You don't have concepts. Um, You have no way to know exactly what they are um, but you feel them in your body. Uh, A lot of those things we carry with us and um, I I, I wonder if you thought about um, how you recognize them in your experience many years later. They don't have names.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's right. Um, What I usually find myself doing, uh, particularly if I find myself caught in trying to give a name to what I perceive, where I name it a something, that maybe that's not the most important piece of information for me. So uh, recognizing something as a perception is only one of the ways that we deal with experience. And another way that we deal with experience is to say pleasant or unpleasant. And sometimes that's enough for me to know this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. Or I will focus on energy, which is a, a ready source of information for me. It's sparkly energy, it's low energy, it's high energy, it's broad energy. So that I don't have to name it something. Although I am using the perception of energy. Nevertheless, it is a little more open for me. So that I don't have to know what it is, only whether I am caught by it. Am I caught by it? Am I clinging to it? Am I agitated by it? If I'm agitated by it, from a psychological point of view it might be useful to know that what it is that i'm relating to but but from the point of view of freedom i only have to not be caught by it so it kind of begs the issue i don't really if i don't know what it is i leave it in the unknown I just notice whether I'm leaning toward it or not leaning toward it whether I'm pushing it away what is it about this experience because it is the response to the experience in which which gives rise to suffering not the experience itself does that make any sense to you it's okay thanks okay thank you